0: Hey, Icon, it is good to be with you today. And so we are gonna jump back into our Roman series on Romans 8. Uh, and honestly, uh, this is a high point in our series. It's a high point in the Bible. A lot of people say that uh, this, especially verse one, is the best verse in the best chapter in the best book in the Bible. And so uh, I don't feel very sufficient to do it justice. So let's let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, I, I thank you for your word. All of it is good, all of it is inspired, and all of it is meant for our growth as Christians. But specifically today, as we look at Romans 8, 1 through 4, God, I feel a a sense of giddiness in my heart to, um, to do this justice, God. And I don't feel sufficient to do that. I know that the truths that we are exploring here are way too high and even complex to really do justice here. And so what I'm asking for today is just your power at work in our hearts to inspire worship, God, that these things that we're going to explore are familiar to us as Christians. And I pray that that familiarity would not cause our eyes to glaze over, but you would, by your Spirit, renew in a a fresh way our sense of wonder that you have done these things, God. And so I pray for your help, God. I ask that you would unite your power with my weak words and cause devotion and worship, joy and peace to come into our heart because of these great truths. And so, Father, I entrust this time to you and ask that you would help us together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I am a father of a three-year-old, which means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that I am very well versed in Disney+. Plus. Uh, we love Disney Plus, especially during the pandemic. It was really, really helpful. Uh, to be honest, I'm sure a lot of you experienced this. But during the pandemic, screen time limits kind of went out the window, and so we watched a lot of Disney Plus, and we love it because there's kids, there's movies for uh, my three year old, but also there's movies that uh, are from our childhood, like Heavyweights and things like that, or all the Disney original movies that I grew up on, and so we love it. And there's a new movie on Disney Plus called Luca. And Luca is the story of this this young sea monster who who lives in the sea on the shores of this uh, like quaint Italian town. And it starts off kind of, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it starts off with just this very strong desire in Luca to go above the surface and go experience what life is like on the land rather than in the sea. And so long story short, there's this long storyline where Luca, he goes onto the shore and uh, once he drives off, he no longer looks like a sea monster. He looks like a human being and he connects with another sea monster and they both want to go explore the world together. Now that they're out of the water, they want to go see what this world is like. And so the whole storyline is built around them trying to raise enough money uh, in order to buy a Vespa and just go explore the world together, to go have fun. Uh, and we enjoyed the movie. I really did. Uh, I'm I'm gonna critique it here in a little bit, but it was a, it's a it's a good movie. I really like it. Um, but underneath that storyline, kind of uh, without really this this underlying plot, is that Luca is constantly having to hide who he is out of fear of rejection. That that in reality he's not a human boy. He's a sea monster. And these people in this Italian town are very afraid of what's in the water. They know there's sea monsters out there and they have a history of trying to kill them. And so Luca and his friend are constantly having to hide who they are out of fear of rejection and even worse, of death of these people killing them. And in the movie, you know, long story short, kind of ends with this crescendo moment where Luca and his friend are finally able to reveal themselves as sea monsters and in classic disney fashion the whole town has a change of heart right the whole town just comes around and says oh wow now we know these boys we saw them do this and do that and they were in this race and they're actually good kids and so yeah they're sea monsters but now we accept them and from there again in classic disney fashion everything just kind of comes together the whole town begins to love the sea monsters sea monsters come out of the sea and into the land and everyone just lives happily ever after together. And it's a good movie, but I couldn't help but think as I was watching that crescendo moment, just this, this one question of like, or statement, he's still a monster though. <laughs> Like, he's still a sea monster, and I know it's like, it's petty, I'm an adult, it's just a kid's movie, my daughter's just e- eating chips and watching this, and so I don't know why I'm thinking through this way, but I'm watching, and I'm like, he's still a sea monster, though. Like, he, he, he hasn't been transformed into being a, a human being now, he's, he's still a sea monster, and although in Disney fashion that doesn't mean as much danger as it would if there was an actual sea monster, the, the fact remains, he's still A sea monster, and he can't take that piece of him away from it. And in fact, even the town now celebrates his monsterness as part of what makes him unique. And it's very obvious uh, what type of agenda even Disney is trying to push in that. And so, even with this crescendo moment where he's accepted and he's everyone just kind of pushes out of their mind the stereotypes they had about a monster, the fact remains is that he's still a monster. He's still a sea monster. And I, I, I guess my question in this, watching this movie and as I've considered this sermon, is what if that is true of all of us? That each of us have a piece of us that we're trying to hide, and then, uh, but our culture is inviting us to expose it and we'll still be accepted. But what if those pieces of us that we are hiding or that we want to hide, that our culture says we no longer have to hide, what if those things about us are still monster-like? What if we're all monsters to the core? Our culture can put makeup on a dead corpse all at once, but the truth of the matter is that each and every one of us have these pieces of ourselves that are deeply broken and deeply sinful. That we, we are told to present our, our truest and most authentic selves like Luca is, but what if your truest self is actually your ugliest self? What if your authentic self is the worst part about you? What if it's not quite as beautiful as it's made out to be? Like in Luke, it's like, yeah, he's made out to be this beautiful monster, but the fact remains is that he's still a monster. <laughs> what if your authentic self is not as beautiful as it's made out to be? Well, in our culture, the solution to that is self-acceptance, right? Right? That we present these pieces of ourselves that we might slightly acknowledge as broken, but we do that in such a way that we just say, well, we got to accept ourselves. Have you, have you noticed that our culture has moved away from, increasingly away from the self-help into self-acceptance? That, yeah, we, we still have this massive self-help industry. But over the last few years, the cultural conversation has kind of moved away from self-help into self-acceptance. It's almost as if the couple decades now of self-help that we've been trying to do have actually revealed to us just how deeply broken and hopeless we are to where now we're no longer trying to improve ourselves. We're just trying to accept ourselves. And so we don't go to self-help. Because in that, we've realized how helpless and messed up we are. We just want to practice radical self-acceptance. But here's the problem. Self-acceptance will never work because you're always having to either change the standards or ignore the brokenness. So all all of us want acceptance. Again, that's what the whole movie in Luca is about. We want to be accepted even for the places where we're broken. But radical self-acceptance, like our culture is teaching us to do and to, to embody, does not work. Because to fully accept yourself requires one of two things. You either categorically change the standards of what goodness and beauty and truth is, So that where you falter away from that, you can still be accepted. Those standards don't really exist anymore. Or you can ignore the brokenness altogether. Neither of which results in real lasting peace. And so for those of us who are courageous enough to be honest with ourselves about how messed up we are to the core, where can we still experience acceptance? that isn't as thin as radical self-acceptance that our culture is pushing. Because we all need acceptance. We all want to be accepted fully, but we also fully know just how much of a monster we can be. Just how broken we are. How can we be that? How can we still be? tell the truth about ourselves? Tell the truth about the worst version of ourselves? and still have any hope of being accepted. In steps in that reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we are told that monsters like us can be accepted, not by changing the standards or by ignoring the brokenness, but the gospel of Jesus Christ presents an acceptance that is realistic about who you are, and yet at the same time never depends on who you are. That it's this, this thick and heavy acceptance that is you can depend on, that our culture has tried to solve this need for acceptance by either changing the standards or changing ourselves, and yet the gospel of Jesus Christ requires neither. It just says, come as you are. I'm getting ahead of myself, but... We're going to look at that reality today of how to be accepted in Jesus Christ and have that satisfy that need for acceptance acceptance that we all have without falling into the pitfalls of changing the standards, loosening the standards, or just ignoring our brokenness. So we're going to look at Romans 8, 1 through 4 today. And like I said at the beginning, this is one of the the high points in the Bible, and there is so much complexity here that we can work through. That would take way longer for time that we have. But looking at this text, what I want to do, because a lot of it is very clear, I just want to run through and explore this reality and this offer of acceptance in Jesus Christ. And to be quite honest, I just want us to revel in it. Like I'm going to explain some things. I'm going to teach some things. I'm going to unpack a little bit. But ultimately, what I want you to walk away from this in is just to revel in it that you just, you revel, Like, like when you're going to climb a mountain, when you're going on this great hike, and you finally get to the high point, like Romans 8, 1 is, you don't just look, you don't, you don't, yeah, you look at how high the elevation is, and some of the specifics, but what are you doing up there? You're taking in the view. You're taking in what's there, and so I hope that today, as we run through this text, that the Spirit of God would just help us to revel. So, let's Let's jump in and explore this offer of acceptance. Verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the great announcement of Christianity. That Christianity comes with an announcement. It's so much more announcement than it is religion. And this verse expounds and explains everything that the Christian faith has to offer. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the wonderful reality that we claim as Christians. And and look at this, there's reasons why this is so wonderful. There is therefore now no condemnation, right Now, so Paul's starting off, and he's going to unpack that reality more and more as we go, but he's starting off with just announcement that right now, because of Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Nothing nothing in you to change yet. Nothing in you to do yet. Nothing in you to get yourself together. No area that you have to shore up in your moral life right now, because of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation, which is wonderful news because if you remember back in chapter 7, Paul is spending so much time exploring and really almost despairing at how sinful he still is. Do you remember it? That he he wants to do good and every time he wants to do good, he does evil and he experiences this disillusionment with himself and this sense of despair of why he's still so sinful. And what does he do? What's the verse right after chapter 7? That right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ announces to you a verdict. It doesn't just invite you into a lifestyle, it doesn't just tell you what to do, it doesn't just want to see you get better, but it wants to announce to you a reality that is fully in play right now. And what's that reality? That there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Zero. No caveats. No chance of condemnation. That's the announcement of Christianity, that right now, there is the offer of zero condemnation. Before you get all of your life together, you can be assured that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is zero condemnation for you. No matter how much you've fallen, no matter where you still are, no matter how Romans 7 your life might still feel, being confused by persistent and consistent sin in your life, no matter that, there is zero condemnation. That's a great announcement of Christianity. And he goes into it, he starts to further explain this reality as he goes through the rest of these three verses. And he says this, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul begins to unravel and further explain exactly how believers receive this verdict of condemnation. And his first way of doing that is by stating that the old state of sin and death, that he's been kind of on a rant, for, rant on from really the end of chapter 5 up until now, the dominion that it exercised over us before coming to Christ, like he's been saying for the last couple chapters, we have been excised and we have been rescued out of that old dominion. That the place in which we now inhabit is no longer determined by sin that always leads to death, but there is this new principle, this new dominion, this new power of the Spirit that leads to life. That you now exist not under the reign of sin that will inevitably lead to death, but you have now been brought into a new reality in which the Spirit of God brings life to you, brings real life into your reality. And this is not Paul saying that our verdict of no condemnation comes because we now obey by the Spirit rather than being subject to sin and death. He's going he's to get into obedience later in chapter 8, but right here, Paul is just showing that All of the realities, these these domains and these realms of sin and death, these powers at work, you have been delivered from those in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. He's going to further explain that. How has that happened? Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Do you see how Paul begins to enter into uh, unpacking this reality? What does he start off with? For God has done. For God has done. God did this. God was not prompted. God was not prodded to do anything for us. But he did it of his own initiative, his own free and gracious choice that this verdict of no condemnation that comes true of us in Jesus Christ is not because we were a good investment for God. It was not because he saw something in us. It was not because he was prodded and prompted by some future goodness that we might have, but he did this of his own initiative. And it says that there, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So God's initiative, again, doesn't come because we are a good investment, because someday we might be able to get our lives together. No, it comes exactly because we cannot do it. God takes initiative for our salvation in Jesus Christ precisely because he knew our inability, not because he thought we would one day get better. Yes, he's going to change our lives and he's going to cause us to grow, but that was not the motivation for saving us, for starting and taking the initiative of our salvation. God didn't take action because you were a good investment. God didn't take the initiative in your salvation because He thought that you'd be able to meet Him halfway. God took initiative to do the work that would result in your verdict of no condemnation with full knowledge of how much of a screw-up you were And how much of a screw-up you would continue to be? That's what what it says here. God has done, God has taken the initiative by doing what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. God's initiative happens in the context of our inability. God's initial action to, to move toward us and to do something about our desperate situation in sin and the condemnation that was looming for us because of the law, God took initiative action to save us from it precisely because he knew we could not. Because he knew that there was something in us, this this thing that defined us called the flesh that could never fulfill the law, that was doomed by law to endless woe, as the old hymn says. And in that context, God takes action. (laughs) And this gives us a security as we consider God's acceptance in Christ. Because God knew your inability before, there's no further instances or examples of your inability and of your failure that could take away the action he already did. That if he started this whole thing off with Full knowledge, eyes wide open on how much of a failure you were and would continue to be, on how hopeless you were to ever fulfill the requirements of the law. If that's when God started and initiated your salvation, what in the world makes us think that any further failure, any, any deepening evidence or example of how broken we are is going to change what he's already started? is going to throw his salvation, his, is, going to, is going to disqualify that verdict of no condemnation. If he started this whole thing off because he knew you couldn't do it, you not being able to do it will never throw off this verdict of no condemnation. Listen to how the theologian J.I. Packer says this. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and love and watching over me for my good, there is, listen to this, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself or quen- and could never quench his determination to bless me. So God, God's salvific initiative, taking the initiative, taking the original action and the, the, the first mover of your salvation, was done with full knowledge of how much you could not do. It was utterly realistic, as Packer says based at every point on prior knowledge of how you could not fulfill the law, of how you could not do it weakened by your flesh. God took action precisely because you were a failure. So no further failure on your part is going to surprise him or remove from you that verdict of no condemnation. And verse 4 gives us the the solid foundation and security of why that's true. Verse 4. By sending His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. After three verses, Paul has finally arrived to a detailed explanation of how we actually Receive that initial verdict in verse one of no condemnation, of how and why we receive full acceptance of what the you know God's initiative action actually led to in order to solve the problem of our own failure. And what does he show? How does he show that? God has done this? What's the means by which our verdict of no condemnation and our full acceptance is available to us without, like I said, the the thinness of self-acceptance just changing the standards? It's done through what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. The great exchange that Jesus becomes what we are in order that we could become what he is. Paul says this in a similar way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear the similarities there? That, That God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, so he, Jesus came and he took on flesh in order that he could be a human being like us, and yet he was without sin. That's why that word, the likeness of sinful flesh, is important. And he sent Jesus Christ for sin. For sin, in order that he could deal with sin. And he does this through what is called the, the great exchange, which are really these two theological categories called expiation and imputation. But that's this great exchange that happens, that in expiation, Jesus takes away our sin from us. It's no longer ours to carry. It's no longer ours to own. Jesus takes away our sin. That's what it says there in 2 Corinthians, right? That he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That Jesus at the cross was taking on all the sin of every person who would believe in him. He was taking it into his flesh in order that he would condemn sin in the flesh. What happens to that sin when Jesus takes it on? Is it just kind of hidden away? (laughs) Does Jesus put it in a closet that God promises never to look at again? No. It is condemned itself. That our sin as it's placed on Jesus Christ receives the just punishment deserved by rebelling against God. (laughs) Jesus didn't just take your sin and just kind of make sure that it it would never come to you again and he just kind of hides it away. Jesus in his flesh on the cross took the punishment of your sin so that it is dealt with forever. That there's no further payment to be made That all the sin that you have done, do, do, and will do has been placed on Jesus Christ and fully paid for. That you don't have to carry it. You don't have to own it any longer. But you can be free of it, knowing that in Jesus Christ, the payment has been made. He took your sin away and He put it in the grave. He took your sin into His own flesh and received its punishment in order that it would be gone. That there's no, there's no more sin for you to carry. There's no more even sin for Jesus to carry. It's all been taken care of. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate. That's what we believe that our sin is no longer ours to deal with or to carry, but has been fully placed on Jesus Christ and paid for. But that's just the first part. That's expiation. That's Jesus' taking away from us our sin. But then there's imputation. Jesus gives us His own righteousness. Notice the passivity that Paul shows in this text. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you notice how passive you are in that? That the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is now being given to us would be fulfilled in us it's not something we do but it's something that does that is done to us so much so that we can now stand before God not only cleansed from sin that's great we need that but also we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order that we could stand before God with confidence that the righteousness of Jesus gives us the security to, to as, the, as John Webster says, to, to look God in the face. That we're no longer afraid of God. We're no longer afraid of rejection and condemnation. But because our sin has been taken away and because we now have a full account of righteousness, we can look God in the face. We can approach him. This is, friends, the way of peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only avenue to satisfy that need for real acceptance that you crave. It's not going to be done through radical self-acceptance. You will never have peace if the only thing you can do is accept yourself. You will either be bothered by your brokenness, continually trying to ignore it and push it away or hide it, or you'll just totally change the standards and make your acceptance really thin. But in Jesus Christ, you can be fully accepted and fully known. That in the gospel, the gospel presents to us the invitation of no condemnation out of no work of our own. (laughs) to be accepted fully and to be fully known and isn't that what we all want that you know there's this thing that Tim Keller talks about that to be to be fully known and to be fully accepted is what we all long for because to be fully known and not fully accepted is our greatest fear and yet to be fully accepted and not fully known is just sentimentality but to be fully known as the broken messed up people that we are, of those who, weakened by the flesh, could not fulfill the law, fully known in our brokenness by God, and yet fully accepted because Jesus Christ has taken on our sin and given us his righteousness. That is the gospel of peace. That's how you get released from perfectionism. That's how you get released from just trying to do better or just trying to accept yourself or just trying to get your life together. You get released from that when you just receive what God wants to give you in Jesus Christ, the peace of acceptance. And so what, what is it today or this week that would make you not believe, that that, that you think you can add to your record of failure that would take away this verdict of no condemnation. What is the unbelief? What, what, what is the brokenness and sin that causes you to, to flinch at God's acceptance? Thinking, no, it, well, I'm sure he accepts me in these ways, but like fully, holy, without reservation? Friends, that, that's the way of God's acceptance. I'm here to tell you today that whatever sin you are stuck in, whatever discouragement you have, whatever failure as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a single, as a Christian, whatever failure is constantly in your life will never and could never undo this great verdict of no condemnation that invites you to receive acceptance that you need. And so would you just would you drop that sin at the place that Jesus dealt with it? Would you return to the cross and see that your sin's been taken away from you, no matter how consistent and constant and bothersome it is? It's been taken away in Jesus Christ. And would you stop trying to shore up your failures with bursts of righteousness, and just see? That righteousness in full has been given to you. It's a gift. Stop trying to earn it. It's given to you. It's been done to you. It's not something you now have to do. To be fully accepted while being fully known is what we all want. It's what Luca wanted. (laughs) And the only way we receive it is in Jesus Christ. So friends, would you respond to the invitation today? to drop all fear, to refuse to ignore your brokenness and refuse to change the standards and just come as you are to Jesus Christ and see that God welcomes you in. Fully known and always fully accepted. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for for this great reality that stands over our life, no matter what season of life we're in, no matter what our life looks like, these truths remain the same. They're objective, they're outside of us. They've been accomplished outside of us. And so because of that, they can never be lost because of us. Lord, would you help us by your spirit to receive that truth, to soak it in, to receive the, the, the joy of acceptance that we have in you. That you, you, you did this whole thing. You accomplished it and you did it with eyes wide open on our sinfulness and brokenness. And now all you do is invite us into receiving. So would you give us the grace of receptive faith today? To refuse the accusations that tell us the, the verdict is is up for appeal, (laughs) that the verdict of no condemnation could be appealed at any time because we are still sinful. No, the verdict stands. You yourself have pronounced it. You yourself have accomplished it. And because of that, we can have peace and experience the acceptance we all need. Would you give us the grace of receptive faith today in Jesus' name, amen.